What is the process for funding AAC devices privately? Casey Barron joins me today to talk about AAC assessment, insurance funding for devices, and building a niche private practice. Hey there, and welcome to the Speechy Side Up podcast. My name is Benita Litvak, and I am so grateful you're here. I'm an ASHA certified speech language pathologist, author, and augmentative and alternative communication consultant who is obsessed with helping SLPs like you stop reinventing the wheel and connect with other SLPs in the trenches. Have you ever wondered how other SLPs seem to be doing it all with ease? Well, around here, you'll get to hear firsthand how SLPs are really getting things done while keeping evidence-based practice and self-care in mind. Think of this as a coffee date with your SLP friends. Get ready to be challenged and encouraged while we learn together. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Speechy Side Up podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment. You can also follow along on Instagram at Speechy Side Up. All links are in the show notes. Now let's get into the show. Today, I'm joined by Casey Barron, otherwise known as the SLP coach. Casey is passionate about coaching SLPs to build their AAC skills and helping SLP entrepreneurs build an online business. Hi, Casey. Hey, Vanina. I'm so so glad you're here today. Thank you for coming on. I'm so, so excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you. We got to meet in person at ATIA earlier this year, which feels like an eternity ago, doesn't it? I know. And I was just thinking like, it was so fun getting to hang out with you and going to presentations with you. We met so many cool people, even got to sit next to Chris Bouguet. It was so cool. So I I still look back at ATIA and I'm like, oh, that was so amazing. That was. And I just remembered it wasn't ATIA where we first met in person. It was ASHA actually. Yes. Yes. (laughs) in November. Yes. And, um, I remember I was in that big exhibit hall and you're like, Casey. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, she knows who I am. So that was so funny. I was like, (laughs) so excited to meet you in person. And yes, seeing you again at ATA, it was so fun. I love like connecting with people that I've met on Instagram and like seeing them in person. I get so excited. Um, but I'm glad that we have been able to, you know, kind of meet each other and get to know each other a little bit more in person and I'm glad you're here today. But for the listeners, let's share, you know, how you got started and where you are today. Yeah. I'm an AAC specialist and a speech language pathologist, and I've worked in a variety of settings. So I've worked in skilled nursing facilities. I've worked in schools, public and private. I've worked in private practice and that's where I work now. And when I was in each setting, I started to notice that Luckily, due to mentoring and the classes I had in graduate school, I had these AAC skills and the skill set that I could use in every setting. And I started to realize that that was not the norm, that other SLPs were um, having so many challenges um, implementing AAC, funding devices. They weren't sure what to do. I saw that you know there was such a need that in every setting, there's clients and students and patients who would benefit from AAC, but their therapists just weren't quite sure the first step to take. And that's when I became really passionate about educating other speech language pathologists in the online space about AAC. 
And through that journey, I had to learn so many business skills. So I had to learn marketing, email, website design, um, just money management. How do, like, who do you hire to help you? Who do you not hire to help you right away? Like all the things in running a business online. And I started using those skills to help other people, other speech language pathologists run their own businesses. Because once you learn this stuff, it's kind of, really fun. So I really enjoy the marketing side. I really enjoy connecting with people and networking. And so I love sharing that passion as well with um, speech language pathologists. And if they're an AAC speech language pathologist, and they want to start a business even better because there's such a need as we both know. So yeah, that's a little bit about how I got started and where I am today. I love that. Thank you for sharing. That's awesome. I can't wait to dive into some of your AAC tips and tricks a little bit more. So let's start off with AAC assessments. What is so challenging about doing AAC assessments and what are your possible solutions? Yeah, so AAC assessment I feel is in some ways different from other evaluations that we do as speech language pathologists, right? Because in other areas of speech language pathology, we have a lot of standardized assessments that'll work and give us scores for how somebody is doing in either speech, articulation, and language skills, you know, receptive and expressive language, right? And with AAC, there's really not that many assessments we can provide that are giving us standardized scores or that are giving us a pinpointed direction to a device. So it's really more of an formal assessment that I encourage people to do and using criterion based measures as opposed to standardized assessments because so often our clients, patients, and students who have complex communication needs are not able to participate in standardized assessments. It's not a standardized score anymore because they're non-speaking or they are minimally verbal. So, so often we can't even rely on the tests that we're used to relying on. So I often teach my students that, and just people online that, you know, AAC assessments are not a test. They're just not. And it's important to implement informal, dynamic, and criterion reference parts to create an AAC assessment. Yeah, great points. Yeah, and I think often about AAC assessments, we're always assessing AAC. So even after you've determined you know, which devices or which systems you wanna implement, even after that point, we're constantly, constantly assessing because it's a dynamic process. So we're always looking at what the AAC user needs in different environments and settings, and their needs may change over time, as does the technology, right? So I was looking at a system that was, you know, three years old, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so antiquated now. It looks so old, and it's only three years old. I couldn't believe it. So the technology is changing at a rapid pace. And so do their needs, you know, especially people with progressive diseases like ALS, right? They're, they're always going to need a different approach or they're going to need somebody to look in, into their daily life and see where we can implement AAC in different ways. So I just think that if we look at an AAC assessment as like a one and done, we're not truly doing a great AAC assessment. Yeah, you're right. Such good points. So what types of informal assessment would you do or criterion reference assessment? So I love the communication matrix for certain populations, especially a child who has autism or maybe another disability. 
I love using that one because it's specifically for children who are communicating in other ways than speech. So it really looks at um, the different areas of, of language, different communicative functions, different types of communication, like gesturing, you know, some speech, you know, are they using gestures at all? Is it unconventional communication? Is it conventional communication? And I especially love it because you can have the parent do it as well. So this is especially helpful when I was doing teletherapy before I went back to in person and I had evaluations coming up. I actually would send the parent the communication matrix and it was a great thing to do over teletherapy. So um, I love that one for certain populations. There is a standardized assessment called the TASP. Um, and that one is an AAC assessment specifically. I have not done that since grad school though, honestly, you guys. So I would say, you know, for more in the informal area of looking at, you know, if there is a language sample you can use, if there are interview questions, you can ask the parents and the caregivers. I often um, will ask the parents or caregivers or the client if they're able to communicate. I'll say, you know, did you use AAC in the past? I'll try to determine, is there a language delay? I'll look and see if there's a prognosis for verbal speech or what is the prognosis for verbal speech in the future? Um, I look at the diagnoses. I ask or I um, assess if they're able to read and write. Sometimes that's hard to know until you give them access to an AAC device though. So um, some of this is with the device that I'm finding all this out. And we're actually not always sure if a child or an adult who is non-speaking can read, right? Because they're not able to read aloud during a reading assessment. So um, oftentimes I'll start to see if they're, they have some literacy skills while we're doing a dynamic assessment with an AAC device, which is really cool. Um, I also want to know, you know, do they speak, what languages do they speak? I want to know what is the family and staff currently doing to communicate with the client? These are all the things I really try to figure out um, when I'm just starting a new AAC assessment. So, yeah. Yeah, great suggestions. Have you used the WADI or do you have any like thoughts about the WADI? We used to use that for our district. The WADI? No, I do not use that. And I'm wondering if I should. Um, I, I think the communication matrix is a really good tool. Heard really good things about it. I think it's more comprehensive. The Wadi is probably more geared towards like the assistive technology side. So oh. you do have like a communication Wadi, but then you all, they also have like an access Wadi. So it might be a good informal type checklist to use if you have someone who's going to need like an alternative access method or something like that. I and I, think, that. I believe it's free online as well. So it's oh, WAI. W-A-T-I. There you go. W-A-T-I. Thank you. Thank you. And I knew this conversation was going to be super, super helpful for your listeners because when two AAC specialists start sharing resources, it's an amazing thing start to happen. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I will definitely look into that. You're so right. Because honestly, like we didn't use the communication matrix. Our speech language pathologist did in our district, but as AT specialists, we did not. So it is interesting to hear like someone else's perspective on that. And you're right. There's so many different tools out there that you kind of get not used to what you're using. Um, but when you're working for a school district or something like that, you kind of, it's more formal. So, or, and standardized. So you do have to kind of go with like what that district requires you to use. And that's what we were required to use. But I love that we can both bring like different perspectives to the table. Yeah. And just our different strengths as AAC specialists, right? Because I feel like 
there's a big difference between working with adults in AAC and then children with AAC, depending on, you know, the populations you're working with. There is overlap always, but I feel that as an AAC specialist, there's always more to learn and there's always more to do. And there's so many people who can benefit from AAC that we're not even realizing. So I just think that it's such a cool field that I, I just... I'm always learning and it's so challenging and sometimes tedious, but I feel like that's why I love it so much. So, yeah, I completely agree. Well, let's talk about AAC funding because that is a hot topic that a lot of people have a lot of questions about and, you know, don't even want to like touch um, unless it's someone who is strictly doing those type of assessments. So what kind of obstacles would you describe in regards to insurance or possible solutions to fund devices? Yeah, um, I'll just start by saying that I think AAC funding is an extremely important part of AAC services. And it's, it's, it's sometimes sad to me that many SLPs have never been taught how to do it and they don't understand the process. And the, sad, the sadness comes from the fact that we are the only professionals in the United States who can fund AAC devices with our signatures if you're a CCC SLP. Um, and so if we don't know how to do it, then people who come to us for help are not gonna get their own communication device funded through health insurance. And not every health insurance is going to cover a speech generating device 100% at this time. And it's, you know, July, 2020 in the middle of COVID outbreak. Um, So just knowing that like, you know, insurances are changing their policies all the time. So this is something that makes funding a complicated area for sure. Um, But I think it's so beneficial to, to fund an AAC device for people because Um, it's going to enable them to keep the device with them at all times, even when moving to different schools, even when going on a summer vacation, when going home after school. I know some districts have different policies regarding this, and they do allow their students to take devices with them when they leave or when they go on summer break or after school, but there's some school districts that do not. And so I do think it's really important that we are always thinking of ourselves as advocates and trying to get our our clients and students and patients the the most we can give them, which is definitely a speech generating device. Um, another thing that um, can benefit a person from having their own device is the cost effectiveness for the the schools. Like I I didn't have an issue explaining to schools when I was working there that you know I wanted to fund a device through insurance because I mean the schools are always already. Um, on tight budgets, they don't have a ton of spending just to to spend on a speech generating device, and I'm, I think that's so unfortunate. But that's just the reality. And so, if we can fund through health insurance, then we are, you know, not only benefiting the client and their independence, but we're also, you know, helping the systems that were pr- previously funding these things. Um, and then the client can also adapt their device to fit their unique needs and alter the look. They can put stickers on it. They can change the case, the colors. The, the program, they can, there's just so much more independence that goes, goes into having your own. Um, another benefit is the family has sole responsibility of the device and does not have to worry about paying damages or losing the device if it's a loaned device. So often families come to me thinking like, I'm so scared to get an iPad from the schools because what if I break it? What if we lose it? What if it's cracked? Will a school make us pay for that? Um, you know, when you have your own device, it's, it's a little bit sometimes easier. Now I've seen the opposite also happen where the parents are thinking, I don't want to send my de- kid's device to school because then if it gets damaged at school, I can't replace it. 
And um, that's really where I love, you know, talking that through with parents about, you know, setting up an emergency fund for a device if it were to break or looking into warranties, which a lot of times are not financially worth it even. The warranty itself is so expensive that sometimes it's more beneficial just to have an emergency fund sitting in your bank account um, to buy a new iPad or to buy a new app or whatnot. You shouldn't have to buy a new app if your device breaks. So really it's just the cost of the iPad or the, the hardware because the, the software, depending on the device you're purchasing, should be able to transfer devices. So anyways, that's a whole other story. But I think that, you know, we just have to be, we have to educate parents a lot on this journey too, because Every family situation is different. Every family's insurance is different. Their financials are different. Their preferences, the child or the adult using the device is gonna have different needs. So we have to look at the whole picture in order to know like what we're going to fund. Um, because like you had mentioned earlier, like access is so, so important. And that's really what will always guide my decisions and funding first and foremost is like, can they access the thing I'm picking. Like if I pick an iPad and they're unable to use the iPad and I fund an iPad, then that is not helpful, right? So it's really about knowing like your assessment and knowing what's gonna work for that person and then using that data to support funding a device the most like cost-effective way possible. So yeah, I'll go into that. That's great. So I know there's people probably listening to this and they're thinking, I would love to do AAC assessments or get started in doing AAC assessments and funding devices, but how do I get access to trial devices? So can you talk about that, please? Yes, of course. I love this topic. Um, so there's so many ways we can loan devices. It's actually slightly overwhelming when I discuss it, so I'll break it down. But one way, you know, if you're working in a school district, and I know you have Anita, it's like you've had access to assistive technology libraries. So sometimes the school district will have iPads with software, AAC software on it that you can loan if you're in the schools, see if there's that available. Because if the child is able to access an iPad, great. See if that's an option for you. Another option is loaning through a state lending program. So I know in Florida, we're both in Florida and we have FAST, which I know you have experience, very much experience in Vanita. And then we also have the ATUDL loan library here in Florida that you need special permission to access. And this is different for every state. So if you're listening to this and you're not in Florida, then I recommend checking online, Googling what assistive technology libraries you have access to and seeing if you can loan a device through them, which is awesome. And it's free, they pay for shipping. I mean, it's an amazing program if you, if you have one in your state, and I believe most states do. I haven't heard of one that doesn't at this time. Um, another way to do it is to contact the reps, so the consultants from the companies you wanna trial with. So if I'm gonna contact my PRC representative, I contact them and I can rent a device borrow device. Um, again, the shipping is paid for. They ship it to you. They ship it back. It's usually for a specific period of time. So it can be like two weeks trial or it can be a six week trial. It just really depends on the programs, like how in demand that device is. And um, when you're borrowing it, usually I contact people through email and um, they'll specify how long I can have it for. And I'll specify if I need anything with it, like a special key guard or touch guide or, and what system I want to try. So you have to know if you're going to loan a, if you're going to loan a device from somebody, you got to know which one you want going forward. And that really 
that information comes from just looking at the devices, getting to know the companies you're going to be loaning from, getting to know their products. And that way you have a clear idea of what's available from them and then which ones would fit your client. Yeah. Great points. And I love like the resources that you shared. This is going to be a selfless plug, but on the Speechy Side Up website, there's a blog post called 10 Ways to Boost Your um, Knowledge in the Area of AAC. And on there, there's a link to find all of the AT centers across the U.S. So yes. definitely check that out if you guys are looking for an AT center in your local area. Um, another thing is like, I've been on both sides. So you, I've shared my background here on here a little bit, but I've been on the private side and I've been on the school side and I've got to witness like how SLPs do their funding processes like effectively. And one of the most effective ways that I've seen that a lot of the hospitals do it, um, because, you know, just given the nature of how they see clients is they will bring in the device consultants or local area device consultants and kind of do just like a demo with the devices with the clients. And then if the client or the family has the ability to choose, then whichever one they decide on, that's the one that they end up doing the trial with. Um, but they give like 30 minutes to an hour to do the demo with those devices. And, you know, as long as a lot of these devices have very similar features in terms of access, in terms of core vocabulary, um, it's just, there's other things like here and there, like it's comparing an Android and an iPhone where it becomes client preference at that point. Um, there have been certain times where you didn't get enough information in that demo and you end up having to trial both devices for um, that 30 day period. But that's another option too. Uh, some people do get really comfortable, like they'll get a device from a device manufacturer and then that's the one they trial with all of their kids. And I don't know that that's necessarily the best option. Um, it helps you to get really familiar with the devices, but like I said, it's like Android and iPhone, you know, every client has their own preference. So it's really important to make sure that you're comparing those each time you do a new trial. Yeah. I love that you talked about, um, preferences. I think that's so, so important and I love it. And you know, I always tell people cause they're like, which app do I choose Casey? And I'm like, uh, which one do they like? Like which one is the kid always going to like, give them an option. See if, cause if you're doing trials, which I hope you are, the kid's going to start showing some preferences. And so are adults. Adults are usually a very, they're very comfortable expressing their opinions, let's just say, and they're very <laughs> able to usually. And um, I feel like with adults, like giving them the two choices, I love that. I've actually done that. And do you mind if I share a story about that? Yeah, please. All right. So I'm in a skilled nursing facility as well, um, part-time, and we had an amazing resident there. Oh my goodness. He was 88, um, had cerebral palsy and no device had speech, but hadn't spoken people had told me in years um, because he, he just knew people couldn't understand him. And I think he had honestly given up. Um, and when I met him, of course, I'm afraid to see him for swallowing because um, uh, ASD referrals and nursing homes just aren't something that typically happen um, until you start to do them and then people start to see a need for them. Um, but I think you know, I met him and I, I had an iPad on me at that time and I showed him some communication apps and um, he had challenges with access. So I could really only show them to him. I couldn't really have him use them super successfully at that time because I hadn't figured out what he needed. 
Um, but I told him, I said, you know, is this something that would interest you? And he's like, he nods his head and I'm like, I'm going to get you one of these. You know, I just told him, I'm like, I'm going to get you one. I'm going to fund you one. We're going to figure out a way to get you one of these. And he started to sob. I have never seen that. I mean, even thinking about it now, it chokes me up because it meant so, so much to him that somebody had seen that he was so, so frustrated and was having all these challenges with communication. And this had never been offered to him before. And he was so interested, even at 88 years old. And with technology, like an iPad, he's interested because he saw the potential of having a voice again. And um, so we did some trials and I actually had the PRC and um, other reps come in and do some trials with him because he was so complex. He had cataracts, he had challenges, upper body mobility. He um, had poor head control, poor neck control. Um, it was just a very complex case and I needed the rep to come in and do a bunch of trials with me um, because it was just so complicated. I had no idea what he would even work. Um, and we ended up getting him a device and I mean, just so happy and it was just an amazing transformation. And so I think that, you know, nobody's too old for a device. Nobody is too complex for a device you know, go in there, see what they prefer, see what you can do, bring in the rep if it's a complex, especially if they're physically complex and look at those access, you know, challenges and just address them. And I think, you know, getting demos done is a great way to figure out what access methods you're going to want to use with somebody um, because there's so many options that we just don't have on hand. Like I don't have an eye gaze system on hand. I don't have switches on hand. I don't have head pointing on hand in my clinic. I just have an iPad. So if somebody comes to me super complex, I bring in the reps, we do some trials, like you said. And I just think that's such a powerful way to really look at what, um, what, there, is out, what there is out there for our patients. Yeah. I love that. That's such a good story. And right. The technology is always evolving. So the rep is going to have like the most current devices, whereas like a loan center might have an older one, um, and so forth. So thank you for sharing that. How did you get funding in the nursing facility? I'm curious to find out. Oh, right. Oh man. I was hoping we would talk about this because I'm like, this is a plug for me to, <laughs> to convince Medicare to fund devices for long-term residents, right? It is yeah. not currently a thing. And it is, that is the most challenging setting I have encountered um, for funding AAC. So uh, Medicare will cover devices in certain scenarios, but unfortunately, if you are in long-term care and you're in America at this time, you are not gonna be able to fund yourself the device through your insurance. I have no idea why that is. I think it's totally, totally wrong. Um, if I could go and lobby, that's what I would lobby on. Um, so I think that that's a need is SLPs. If we can do something about that, that'd be great. Maybe I should start a petition on this. Um, but I think that, you know, that is a challenge for sure. So what ended up happening in that gentleman's case was he had money um, sitting and they're like, Casey, we have money to spend. We were thinking of getting him a, a communication device like you'd suggested. And I'm like, great, let's buy him one with his money. He had, maybe it was his, I don't even know where the money came from, if it was from the state or if it was from parents or something that was sitting in an account. So I was able to fund him the technology with the money that he had. We bought him a mount and all the things. Um, so I think that in his case, he was fortunate. However, I had another scenario in that nursing home 
that somebody else was not as fortunate. I was unable to fund them a device with the current um, challenges, financial challenges he had, and he was super motivated. So of course, you know, I figure out my own little ways of let's get this, let's get this free demo on your laptop, right? So I figure out little ways, and of course, using low tech that I I get people um, access to communication, but it's not always ideal, especially with that population in particular. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm glad that he was able to like, you know, fund it, but it is unfortunate that like it has to come from the patient just because they're in like a long-term care facility. I think there was a law recently passed where if they get it prior to going in, they can now keep it. Whereas before they couldn't, right. I'd have to double check on that. Um, but you can't get it while you're in there, which is really, yeah, you cannot, you can fund it. You can fund through Medicare if you are like living at home and getting home health services or, or if you have ALS or, you know, there's certain um, ways that somebody can get an AAC device, but think about that. So if somebody's living at home and they're getting home health, that means, and they're going to eventually end up in a long-term care facility, which often happens, right? So the transition with adults is like, you know, they live at, at home as long as they can, and then they may eventually go into long-term care. Well, if you're the AAC person or the SLP working with somebody who's in home health, you've got to fund that device like yesterday. Yeah. Because if they were to like all of a sudden fall, break their hip, and they needed a communication device, and now they're in long-term care and we don't know when they're, if they're ever going to come out, then we've lost our chance. So there's really like, we have to look at the big picture and understand funding to really make the best decisions for our patients. And I, I, I don't think people should fund devices um, before they know the right device for that person or the best device they can find for that person, I should say. Um, but I do think that, um, you know, time is of the essence with a lot of our families. Yeah, such a good point. So let's talk about private practice options for AAC specialists. What are the different options available? Private practice, clarify the question for me. Sure. Um, if someone wants to be an AAC specialist and have their own private practice, how can they do that? All right. So if you are currently an AAC specialist and you're enjoying this conversation, <laughs> or, um, then I definitely think there's a market for more AAC specialists to start their own businesses. I think that, you know, if an AAC specialist were to start a private practice, that it would be extremely powerful because there's so much need and so so many SLPs who are not sure how to do it or how to get started or how to implement AAC or how to fund AAC. And if you have these skills where you want these skills and this is your passion and you're willing to um, pursue the knowledge to do it, then I think that starting a private practice is such a great opportunity. Um, I've been, I just think when you specialize in anything in speech therapy, having your own private practice enables you to see the clients that you love, right? So this doesn't go for just AAC, but you know, if you were to think about people who love apraxia of speech or people who love um, dysphagia, right? They become super niche down and they just see those people and that's what they love. This enables an AAC specialist because we love working with AAC and sometimes we don't love everything else. So it's a great way to serve the patients you love. It's a great way to make more money doing what you love because there's no, you know, chunk of money coming in from the insurance company that's going to somebody else so they can keep you employed. There's, um, you know, there's just so many opportunities. And now with, with COVID, we've really all gotten 
great training in teletherapy, right? So we're all like teletherapists now, basically. <laughs> I think we all have the setups now. We all have the skills. We have had to learn, you know, baptism by fire kind of. So I think that there's such an opportunity, especially now with um, the current pandemic that, you know, bringing your services online is totally doable. I have people reaching out to me all the time looking for an AAC specialist. And I think that if you were to market yourself as an AAC specialist, if you were to start a practice either online, in person, in the home, in a clinic, which is honestly can be pretty safe because if you see one person at a time and you're using PPE, you're sanitizing between people, or you're doing it all online, then it can actually be very safe for people during a pandemic. So I totally can see people. Um, I've actually been seeing a trend, Vinita, I don't know if you've been seeing it, but I've been seeing a trend of SLPs leaving schools, SLPs leaving hospitals, SLPs leaving skill nursing because they don't want to put themselves at risk. They don't want to um, put patients at risk. Maybe they have um, somebody medically complex at home or who's um, immunosuppressed at home. So I think that we're seeing more and more people look at different avenues of starting their own business so that they can be safe and make more money and serve the clients they love. So that's what I've been noticing. Have you noticed that too? I feel like I have, but I don't know like what the actual numbers are, you know? Oh, yeah. It's like when you're <laughs> thinking about a Jeep, all you see is Jeeps. So I don't know if that's like really what it is, but uh, right. yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. And I think that um, I've just, I've just been getting, you know, people emailing me and people sending me DMs of how do I do this? And I, I just saw a need and I started helping speech language pathologists start their own businesses. Um, and you know, I, I actually didn't set out to do that. I actually set out to help SLPs in different kinds of businesses like TPT or courses, like what I've done, right? And I was like, oh, that's going to be a need. But no, everybody has wanted to start their own private practice. And I'm totally in support of that because it's such a need, especially if you know AAC, that it's going to, you know, help so many people when we have more people who specialize. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm glad that you are able to offer that to SLPs who want to make that jump. So that's great. Thank you. Speaking of that, how can SLPs find clients if they want to have a private practice and market themselves as a private practice clinician? Yeah. So I love to help um, speech language pathologists learn how to market network online and in person. I mean, it's hard to do in person right now, obviously. I think I think that learning some business strategy is super important if you want to go into the private practice space, because in order to find the clients, you have to know a little bit about marketing either on a website or in ads or in social media or with doctors. Um, and one thing I've noticed that has cracked me up from since starting SLPs, starting their private practices, is that usually the best advice I give them is to go tell people they are starting a private practice, literally just saying out loud to people who care about you or people who know you that you are starting a private practice in this area, serving this population. People start to be like, oh, I know somebody. 
oh, I know so-and-so is looking for a speech therapist. Oh, I know so-and-so wants this. Literally, that has been the most powerful piece of advice I have given people. I think so often as entrepreneurs, we're almost embarrassed or um, scared it's not going to work out to tell people we want to start a business. So I remember, um, you know, a year ago, it was kind of scary, like going and talking to people and being like, yeah, I own a business. Yeah. I run my own online business. Yeah. I, I specialize in AAC. Yes. I love to coach people in business. Um, saying that stuff out loud is scary, but it's so powerful. It gives you more confidence in yourself and people start to see how passionate you are. And they're like, Oh, like I know, I know somebody who could, who'd, who'd love working with her. Um, and so, so many referrals, for my clients have come from just their friends or from other SLPs or from teachers, right. That they're working with in the schools. So I think just that's the hilarious thing about marketing as a, as a uh, private practice owner is like word of mouth is so, so cool how it works in your favor. Um, and then, you know, the power in specializing, right? So when you do specialize in something and you're not just a one size fits all clinician. So a lot of people come to me and they ask, you know, don't, shouldn't I see everybody? Like, I don't want to limit it to just kids. I don't want to limit it to just adults, or I don't want to limit it to just apraxia or just AAC. And I'm just thinking like, well, what clients do you want to work with? Like, what's your favorite? Cause we all have a favorite. Okay. I, I, I would, I don't know if I've ever met an SLP who didn't have a favorite client, but our type of client, I should say. And, you know, when you're looking at what kind of business you want to build, you know, reverse engineer your dream, like look at what's your dream. What kind of clients do you love to serve? And then we'll do that. Just do that. You know, don't stretch yourself too thin because people are willing to pay more if you specialize. They're willing to seek you out more if you specialize. They're going to trust you more if you specialize and you're then they have the client or their child is your ideal client. Then it's going to be much simpler to, to land clients because they're going to think this person knows what how to do this. This person knows how to fund an AAC device. This person knows how to do an AAC assessment, you know? And I think, um, or they know how to work with childhood apraxia of speech, whatever it is, that when you specialize, people are trusting you more and your clients just start popping up and then you're happy because that's your favorite person to work with. Yeah. Love that. Good piece of advice. It's so good. And I think too, when you are doing something you're more comfortable with and focusing your energy on that, you can be much more effective as well. And oh. sometimes it's good to repel the type of people that aren't going to be a good match for your services because you could waste a lot of time finding out that you're not a good match when you could have been seeing somebody else in the meantime. Yes. Yes. And, um, so many people start off their private practices, um, after work. So they're usually like working at a school or working at another private practice or working at a nursing home and they're launching this business while they're still working. And so they only have like six or eight hours a week, right? If that, so that's like three people like three clients, if you see them twice a week. So you really want to choose like, well, who do you want to work with? This is your business, right? Even though I'm a 1099 contractor at this time, I still can decide, you know, who do I want to see? Because as soon as we hire somebody else, or as soon as somebody has hours opening up, I can shuffle some people that are not a great fit for me to somebody else who loves that type of client or vice versa, right? So in my practice, everybody's giving me the AAC cases. And then I tend to get overwhelmed because my schedule is like totally booked with AAC. And then I'm like, okay, this is our tick case. Who wants it? You know, I start to shuffle other cases to them. So, you know, I think the same goes with 
uh, your own business, you're going to want to know, you know, what is your favorite? Because that's the type of person you want to work with. You're going to get the CEUs all the time to support that person. You're going to be in the trainings. You're going to be taking things like my course, AAC Diamond Core. You're going to be learning all the time that, you know, how to be a better clinician in that area. And that's just so powerful for the clients. Absolutely. Well, we could probably talk forever. We might have to do, I keep saying this with like the past interviews I've had because they've been so good, but we need Thank to do you. like a part two and three. Hey, so you may or may not know this, but I'm expecting my first child this month and I'm so excited. It's been a few years since I've worked in early intervention or spent time with babies. So I find myself trying to brush up on all of the developmental norms. That's one of the reasons why I am thrilled to share about an upcoming series that we are doing on early intervention. This series kicks off with a pod course on caregiver coaching and family capacity building in early intervention. And our guest speaker is Dr. Molly Romano, who is a professor at Florida State University. You will get to hear the latest evidence-based research in this area, including how to embed intervention into daily routines and effectively coach caregivers through telepractice. Her episode is even available for ASHA CEUs through Tassel Continuing Education, and members get early VIP access starting on November 1st, 2020. That means you don't have to wait until the episode airs on this podcast. Dr. Romano is so entertaining, and she shares so many great tips in this pod course, but one point that she made that really stuck out to me is that your intervention doesn't happen in your session. It happens between visits. That means when determining how effective your therapy is, you should be measuring what is happening when you're not there. So what does effective caregiver coaching look like? You can learn about the super framework that she helped to develop and more in this pod course. Head to tasseltogether.com or click on the link in this episode description. Then check out the courses tab to find the course titled Root for the Home Team, Caregiver Coaching and Family Capacity Building in EI to learn more. If people are not familiar with you, where can they find and connect with you? And also, do you want to talk about your course as well, where they can find that? Yeah, I'd love to. So you can find me and about AAC Diamond Core at www.kcbaron, and I'll spell that for you. I have an unusually, unusually spelled name. It's K-A-C-Y-B-A-R-R-O-N.com. So www.kcbaron.com. That's my name. On Instagram, I'm Baron SLP. On Facebook, I'm Baron AAC Specialist. And if you want to email me, you can. My email is K-A-C-Y-K-C-B at kcbaron.com. And yeah, I'm so excited. You know, AUC Diamond Core is in its second launch. It's in its second go around. We're in the middle right now. I've got students from all over the world, which is so amazing. I love helping SLPs all over. I, I learned so much from them about their own funding challenges and about their own experiences with AAC and about what's, what's, um, you know, what they want to learn for their own, you know, clients. It's just fascinating. Um, and I also, I love it because I get to teach SLPs about assessment, about funding, about implementation and training caregivers and staff. So I also cover children to adults. As you can tell, I love both. I love working with both with AACs and I have some experience in both. So I love, um, covering 
all the considerations that I can think of when I run the course. I, you know, every time I run it, it's a little different. And so it's just been so fun. I, I do it all online and yeah, if you want to sign up for the wait list, it's on my website. Great. Thank you so much, Casey. This has been such a pleasure and I look forward to following along on your journey. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. By the way, have you joined the SSU crew yet? By joining, you get access to the free goods section on our website, plus podcast updates, special event notifications, and therapy inspiration. You can sign up at bit.ly slash join SSU crew, all lowercase, or just find the link in this episode description. Also, don't forget to take a screenshot of this episode so that you can always refer back to it and share it on social media if you really love the topic. Take care and remember to always fill your speechy side cup first before you can pour into others.